Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Java Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to make the impossible possible in your life, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is a New York Times bestselling author and an award-winning journalist whose work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. And his latest book is entitled The Art of Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer. But before I introduce you to Stephen Kotler, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Stephen who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Stephen is one of the world's leading experts on human performance and is the author of 11 bestsellers out of a total of 14 books, including The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold and Abundance, and his latest bestselling book, The Art of Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages, and he's appeared in over 100 publications. Stephen is also the co-host of Flow Research Collective Radio, which is a top 10 iTunes science podcast. Stephen, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? What you can't see, my friends, is that Stephen is cracking up right now, and I hope it has nothing to do with me, and it's because of his dog. Yeah, well, I got a 150-pound dog who keeps pumping into my legs while we're driving the dog. Be quiet, be quiet. Yeah, well, I couldn't hear it, actually. What, what kind of dog is he? It's a Marema. Come here, Kika. Yeah, he's beautiful. He's beautiful. I'm going to take a picture. I was trying to take a picture while I was reading so that I could. There, he's adorable. And you've got a little chihuahua there. And I know you and your wife have an animal rescue sanctuary, right? That's where yeah, you're living? Yeah, we do hospice care and special. It's a sanctuary. It's not a rescue. We, we've done rescue work, but now it's predominantly a sanctuary. We do hospice care and special needs care. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. Well, as I said to you before we started recording, Stephen, I have been so excited to have this opportunity to interview you because you have, with your latest book, written about what I think I've landed on as well over the last several years from interviewing hundreds of professionals like you in dozens of different industries. And that is that there actually is a formula to finding your passion and your purpose, and that often the biggest hurdle to realizing your dreams, what we might call the impossible, those far-reaching ambitions that we have, the biggest hurdle is right here. It's in between your ears. It's your brain. Okay. I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's true. Um, I think for some people, it probably is their biggest hurdle. I think for other people, there might be other things in the way. I don't know. But I do know the work I've done for 30 years has been on the neurobiology of peak performance. So I want to know what's going on in the brain and the body when human beings are performing at their best. And as you pointed out, the field's advanced a lot over the past 20 to 30 years. And, you know, we have a pretty good idea of sort of the basics of what's going on, how the system works, what the system is, how it's organized, how to get the most out of our biology. And certainly... The overall lesson is that I think we're all capable of so much more than we realize. In the book, you break down the roadmap to realizing what we're capable of, and you break it into a sequence of steps. And they include first, motivation, second, learning, third, creativity, and the fourth, no surprise, flow. And I would like to begin by unpacking these four off-ramps to your roadmap, or maybe we want to call them the essential ingredients, by getting more into your own story, Stephen, because you learned the art of the impossible firsthand before you actually began to research it, and then, of course, layer on the data to back it up. So... If it's okay with you, I'd like to flash back, way back to when you were in school. You went to the University of Wisconsin, Madison, where you got a BA in creative writing. And I can imagine if we have any older listeners in the audience, and maybe even some of our young listeners are thinking, why the hell did he major in creative writing? That's not the pathway to realizing riches and success and and all of that. That's like a pathway to uh, the unemployment line. So why did you major in creative writing? Because I've been writing since I was four years old. It was interesting because I remember being in college and I remember hearing about the creative writing department and I was already, this is going to sound so ridiculous. It was so ridiculously arrogant and like hindsight at like 18 or 19 at the time. But I was like, but I'm already a writer. Why would I need to take creative writing classes? Like I've been writing every day since I was 15. And I still, I, I, I'm not quite sure. They threw me out of the University of, Park, University of Wisconsin creative writing department also. No, um, I didn't know yeah, that. I was thrown out. I ended up being invited back, but I was thrown out. I was very, very disruptive, as they said. I was a punk rock. Most people who ended up in the creative writing program, they wanted psychotherapy. They didn't want to write. 
they literally, they, they would they wanted to go talk about their problems and the stuff that had happened. And I'm not saying that's not a valid use of writing, but I was there to like learn how to write fiction and learn how to write poetry. I thought just because something shitty happened in your life, it didn't make it good fiction. It just made it something shitty that happened in your life. And I was very vocal about this and I wasn't particularly polite about it. Um, so, and, and I was also doing, I was doing really weird things with language. I was pushing on language in ways that the University of Wisconsin had a fairly conservative creative writing department. And to their credit, they asked me to leave and then they hired Lori Moore, Jesse Lee Kirchhoff, and a bunch of other really brilliant writers who actually did the kind of work that I did and asked me to come back. So why did I major in creative writing? I didn't, I don't think I had any other ideas at the time. I ended up, I mean, the funny thing is I ended up with a degree in creative writing, English, fine art, and philosophy. So I have three minors and a major. So did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? I no, I, I, before I had, before grad school, I had been working in advertising a little bit. I had worked for a company called Footcon and Belding. Uh, I was doing, I was working a little bit on Taco Bell ads. They were most famous for in the nineties. They did the really famous Levi ads with Spike Lee and people like that. They were, they were a really cool shop. And I thought I didn't, I wasn't not really wired for advertising, but I thought that's where I was going to end up and talk about weird career paths. They had never met me at foot counter building. I've been working, I've been a freelancer and I was a punk rocker. I had long dreadlocks and they invited me after grad school to come into the office and they saw me for the first time. And this was in the early 1990s. And really, you couldn't look like me and work in corporate America. Today, you can. Today, you can look any old way you want. Then you could not at all. They would, there was no, it was very clear from the moment I walked in that I wasn't going to get the job. And despite the fact that I'd worked there before, blah, blah, I was actually being interviewed by a friend of mine or a guy I had known. He didn't know what to do with me. And because he couldn't hire me looking the way I, I looked, he also couldn't tell me that he couldn't hire me looking the way I looked. Because that, right, that's a lawsuit way to happen kind of thing. So he kept trying to persuade me to leave. And I just like, I needed a job, man. I wasn't leaving. And finally, he went to a meeting. He threw a copy of a magazine. The magazine was called Bikini. It was not about bikini. It was like the early precursor of what became magazines like Details or Spire, things like that. It was out of LA. And I opened it up and I read an interview written by a guy who ended up becoming a friend of mine. It was just an interview with a, a movie star, but it was written in a way. I, I, it was very punk rock. It was very new to journalism. And I went, I can do this. And I stole the magazine and I left the building and I went home and I called the editor in chief on the phone every hour on the hour, four days until he took my call. And I had no, I'd never written journalism before, but I had my senior thesis, which was a book. I had Paul, I had papers. I had, I just faxed this dude anything I could send him at the time. And then I just kept calling. And eventually, you know, he called me back. He's like, look, you got chutzpah. And he gave me a shot. And then magazine journalism, as you know, if you're curious and you can hustle, you can basically get paid to learn anything you want to learn from almost anybody you want to learn from, which is, you know, like being kind of the case of the kingdom. So you decided to pursue journalism while you were sitting in an office interviewing for an advertising for, job. For an advertising job. Yeah, I knew I, did. I knew I really didn't want to work in advertising either. I had never thought about pursuing journalism. And because traditional journalism wasn't interesting to me, but what I saw when I saw what was going on in bikini, I was like, wait a minute, 
this is edgy. This is interesting. It was also, I was ignorant of what had gone on in the new journalism, new journalism movement. So like Joan Diddy and the, like I knew a little bit of that work, but I didn't really understand what had gone on this. So I didn't realize there were a lot of kindred spirits actually working in journalism. That was, it was a, it was a good home for me. It fit really, it fit really well, it's especially in the nineties when if you weren't outside of New York, New York was still corporate America and whatever. And, but if you were part of any of the other kind of magazine kingdoms that were elsewhere in the nineties, magazines were the internet before the internet. And it was, you could really, you could do a lot of really creative work. You could do push on language. You could do really interesting stories. It was a good fit for me. And they were weird. And they were weirdos who were running the show also. When the magazine started, magazine movement happened in the nineties, it happened because Mac publishing or whatever that was showed up the, the very first desktop publishing program. And all of a sudden there were people who wanted to start a magazine. The punks who had been running the zine since the seventies were the only people who knew how to do it. So the punks got all the jobs. And so for like this weird window, it was sort of like they let the freaks take over, you know, the media. And that's, I sort of stuck in that back door. So when you say you were a punk, did you have a band? I did not have a band. I did have a Mohawk, though. So I, well, you were more punk in, like, your dress and the music that you enjoyed to listen well, to? Well, okay, so I'm sorry. The punk rock movement, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the punk rock movement, yeah, there was a lot of funny haircuts. Yeah, there was a lot of, like, anger and sex and, and all that stuff. Punk was about DIY creativity. Punk rock was, from the very beginning, it was the record labels didn't want to put out the punk albums. That's where it started. So people started recording their own albums and then booking their own tours and then making their, building their own shows. And then they needed magazines to support the scene. I started a magazine, you know, a scene in support of the punk scene called Penumbra way back in the day. I don't even think it lasted like three issues, but whatever. It was a lit mag, it was a punk rock lit magazine out of San Francisco years ago that I started so yeah, to me, when I think about punk rock, I think two things. I think DIY creativity. What I really think is we didn't care who you were. We didn't care what you looked like. We didn't really care what you believed in or who you had sex with or what, how you looked. What we cared is, could you add something to the creative mix? Could you help us do something interesting with creativity? So when I talk about punk rock, yeah, I had funny hair and all that other stuff, but I'm really talking about kind of a DIY creativity movement. Got right. it. Okay. Now it's sort of captured in entrepreneurship and it's a very different thing. People don't realize that like the entrepreneurial values are punk rock values. Like that's where a lot of that emerged from. Okay. So as you probably know, Stephen, one of the bigger challenges that's facing college students and recent grads today is this feeling of overwhelm. They're flooded. They're inundated with 24-7 information, their stress is high, their anxiety is high, and they're stuck. And so many of them can't make a decision about what they want to do when they graduate. They don't want to pick a lane. And in The Art of Impossible, you quote the opening lines of the 2002 film Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And I'll quote here. When you're young, your potential is infinite. You might do anything, really. You might be Einstein. You might be DiMaggio. Then you get to an age when what you might be gives way to what you have been. You weren't Einstein. 
you weren't anything. That's a bad moment. So how can we help our young listeners become their own version of Einstein or Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Kamala Harris or Oprah Winfrey or Melinda Gates? It's a great question. There's two answers that are worth giving. The first is, and they're both things I talk about in our possible. And the first, I want I don't want to talk about my work. I want to start with I talk about my friend David Epstein's work in The Art of Impossible. He wrote the book Range. And Range is an argument not for early specialization, but it's an argument for being a generalist and searching for match quality. Match quality is a term I think Adam Gratt actually may have coined it the first time. I'm not 100% certain. There's an economics term that says there's a very tight fit between who you are, your values, your strengths, and the work you do in the world. And it's useful if you're interested in big performance, like that, having that kind of type fit. So a lot of people want to rush into it. What the research shows, what David's work in range shows, some of my work shows is no, go a lot, go a little slower. And in fact, I lay out a process. And in fact, we can give this to your readers. I don't even have to go to the book because we took this portion of the book and put it someplace else because so many people found it useful. But I would lay out what I call the passion recipe. What people don't I'm sorry, lay out the what? Lay out something called the passion recipe. Let me actually back up. If you're interested in peak human performance, you mentioned earlier that these four categories of skill sets, motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. The way to think, this is basically... We are all, when I talk about peak performance, I'm saying nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That biology, especially if you're on the cognitive peak performance side, right? We're not talking about athletics, we're not talking about sports right now, but on cognitive peak performance, when we talk about our biology, it's four sets of skills. There is a bunch of skills that fall under the heading of motivation, and we're going to come back to that in a second. Bunch of skills under the heading learning, creativity, and finally flow, right? Flow is sort of the optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And the way to think about this quartet of skills or skill sets is in any when you're faced with any challenge, right? Motivation gets you into the game. Learning allows you to continue to play. Creativity is how you steer. And this is really true if you're going after high, hard, kind of impossible goals. I don't know. I know where I am. I know where I want to go, but I have no idea how to get there. Right? We need creativity to steer. And flow, that being in the zone moment of rapt attention and total absorption, we get so focused on what we're doing that everything else just disappears. And all of our abilities, both mental and physical, tend to go through the roof. We could talk more about what that means later. Flow is how we turn boost the results kind of beyond all reasonable expectation. Okay, so we've said all that. Motivation is where the hunt for big performance starts. And the research is really clear on this. It says, look, if you want motivation, you want to get in the game, start, you got to start with extrinsic motivation. You actually have to start by earning a living a little bit. This is Maslow's work. This is some other people's work. The basic idea is Daniel Kahneman worked on this. We need to make enough money so we can pay our bills and have a tiny little bit left over for discretionary fund, right? Don't have to be rich. You don't have to be a millionaire, but if you are food insecure, if you don't know how to pay your rent, if you don't know how to feed your kids, there's too much fear in your system. It's re- you possibly can overcome it and still perform at your best, but as a general rule, most of us can't. And on the day-to-day basis, most of us can't. So you really sort of like solve that, solve that first, and then you want to turn your attention to motivation. And this is sort of 
the other half of the answer to your question. Once you've sort of taken care of basic needs, right? That's extrinsic motivation. Things will work hard in the world to get money, sex, bank, right? In this case, we're talking about money. Once that's taken care of, if you want to increase performance or productivity or motivation, you actually have to turn to intrinsic motivators, stuff that's internal to us, ourselves that drive us. There are lots of intrinsic motivators, but there's a big five. Curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And what people don't realize is they're all linked. Curiosity is our foundational, it's the most basic motivator there is. And what's the big deal with intrinsic motivators? I mean, there's a lot of them, but your brain is giant energy hog. It uses 25% of your energy when you're at rest. So you're not even doing any work, 25% of your energy. The minute you try to do something hard, like pay attention to a lecture that's boring, right? College was really hard for me because I don't like being lectured to. And I feel like sitting in lectures was really, really difficult for me. That's hard work for me personally and requires a lot of focus. When we are curious about something, what do we get for free? We get focus for free. Oh, this is so cool. I'm so into this. You're not working hard to pay attention to it. It's happening automatically, right? Now, curiosity is designed to be built into passion. What does that mean? It means that people are all hunting for, oh, I want my passion. I want my purpose. Okay. It's a slow process, first of all. And curiosity, what we mean by passion, what passion actually is neurobiologically, it's the intersection of multiple curiosities. The way to think, and curiosity, by the way, this is where people go wrong, is passion is cultivated by curiosity. Curiosity is not a big deal. I'm talking about, when I say curiosity, I mean like, Whatever it is, it's neat enough to you that if you had like, if I could stop time and give you a free weekend worth of time, you would read a couple books, attend a lecture, maybe have a couple conversations with some experts, ask some questions, just enough curiosity to spend two or three days on the subject, right? That's all we're talking about. Passion is the intersection of multiple curiosity. Figure out where three or four or five of your curiosities intersect and play there and learn there and grow there. That's how we grow passion. It's nothing fancier than that. It's nothing more or less. We also hear a lot of younger people today talk about wanting purpose. And what's interesting is I think most of the people who talk about wanting purpose want it for altruistic reasons. They want to do good in the world. From a peak performance standpoint, passion and purpose are really, really actually selfish. Sound altruistic, they're really selfish. And let's let's put a little meat around that. Curiosity is a little bit of the neurochemical dopamine and a little bit of the neurochemical norepinephrine. That's essentially the cocktail that makes curiosity. Passion is a lot of the neurochemical dopamine, a lot of endorphins, or a lot of norepinephrine, a lot more. Those are both performance-enhancing, feel-good neurochemicals. They feel great, but they also amplify focus to increase our ability to find connections between ideas and a bunch of other things in the brain, their performance enhancing chemicals. You can't get any more. Passion is sort of like you, if you live, I were to give you more norepinephrine or more dopamine, you're actually going to have schizophrenia or mania at that point. Like you can't, I can't crank it up anymore without pushing out of the spectrum of like normal performance into problems, right? Neurobiological problems. If I want to increase motivation more, you want purpose. That is the thing that you're passionate about. And then you say, okay, how do I use this thing to solve a great problem in the world? Now, the reason you want purpose from a peak performance standpoint is purpose gives you additional feel-good performance-enhancing neurochemistry that you can't get without other people in the equation. So there's a whole bunch of social mammals 
So there are what are called pro-social neurochemicals. These are endorphins, for example. So this is when a mother bonds with her child, that really tight bond that's predominantly endorphins and oxytocin. We can get the same access to these kind of chemicals, right? So we get more feel-good performance-enhancing neurochemistry with purpose. Once you have purpose, what does the system want? It wants autonomy, the freedom to pursue that purpose. And once you have autonomy, the system demands mastery, which is skills to pursue that purpose well. Those are the five major interest motivators, that's, and that's the order they're meant to be cultivated. They're meant to, you can cultivate them in other ways. You can certainly start with autonomy and then go to mastery and blah, blah. It's just that if you do it in this particular order, you just go farther, faster with a lot less fuss. It's just easier. So is the answer to the question, how our young listeners can become their own version of fill in the blank person who we say has had a successful passion slash purpose driven life that they need to follow their curiosity, the intersection of several areas of interest that then become a passion, that then become a purpose, that then lead to mastery. Yes. Yes. And let me tell, let me, let me talk about two more things that I, God, I wish somebody would have told me this a little bit when I was a little younger, because it's really hard to understand from the outside for reasons that we'll get to. First of all, when you say passion and purpose, a lot of people screw this up because if I were to say athletic passion, you know, give me an example of athletic passion, you're going to say, okay, LeBron James, gowling in for a windmill dunk in the playoffs or whatever. That's what we think of. And we that's passion. That's mature passion. That's cultivated passion. That's passion now. Passion on the front end, it looks like a little kid in the driveway shooting baskets, trying to get a ball to fall through. That's what passion on the front end looks like. So we make this mistake that we expect passion on the the back end, like the windmill, scowl, dunk, all that energy, all that passion. And when it doesn't show up on the front end, we're pissed. We're like, oh, this must not be my passion. I don't feel like that. I'm not. Well, it didn't feel like that on the front end for that person either is part one of that. It's really important to know that. The other thing is, and this is the other thing that I think is unfortunate. This is back to what David Epstein said about experiment with a lot of stuff. Take your time. There is people, and I don't know why, but young people today, when I talk to them, they talk a lot, a lot of them feel really pressured to like find their passion early, to find their purpose early. And that is, I mean, maybe good fuck. I mean, like, okay, good luck, right? The thing I always tell people is you really like be cautious here. You do not want to be like two years into your passion and discover, oh shit, it was only a phase. But I tell a story of a friend of mine who... She was trained as a medical doctor and then one day woke up in the middle of medical school and she was like, you know what? My true passion is archaeology. I'm actually an archaeologist. And she read a couple books, dropped out of med school and signed up for like a two-year dig in Egypt. Got to Egypt, got like two months of the dig and went, what the hell am I doing? I want to be a doctor. I did this too. Like I dropped out of college 
for a little while. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be a writer. I think I want to be a painter or a performance and video artist. And I went to the San Francisco Art Institute. The reason I have a minor in art, I thought I was going to be an artist, not a writer. And it turns out I got there and I was like, oh, I'm not bad at art, but I don't have what, like I saw the people who were really into it. And I was like, no, no, I'm better at writing. Like I do that, that like get absorbed, don't talk to you for six hours kind of thing. That happens to me while writing. That doesn't really happen to me while painting. I think I, I, I think I thought artists got laid more. But that's a great point because when you're 18, 20, 22, 23 years old, your passion is usually driven by what's between your legs. A little it's bit. Not, it's not always what's between your ears. Your interests, though, are there. Your interests are there. So follow your interests, your curiosity, and see what sticks. It is also, and you do talk about this in the book, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but it's also about leaning into your strengths. What comes easily to you? What do you usually dismiss? Because it comes so easily to you, Stephen, clearly writing was an area where you excelled. I I, I take it farther than that also. This is, I think, really important for people that younger folks to hear because people don't talk about this. We all have what I call our invisible skills. Like when we talk about our strengths, I talk about strengths are one thing, right? They're usually visible, but we have invisible skills. I'll give you a great example. If you grew up in an alcoholic home with a violent mother and a violent father, you are probably excellent at breaking up fights. You are really good at deflating arguments and breaking up fights. Now, You don't think of that as a skill. You thought of that as, oh, my crappy childhood and stuff I had to do to survive. And I get that. But it's a skill. It's a skill set. You can diffuse tension. That's something to build on. I had an ability for a lot of reasons, but because I mostly I started working when I was 11 and I was a magician and I learned to talk to everybody all walks of life, whatever. I was doing birthday parties. I was going into people's homes and performing for their kids and whatever. And I needed, you know, I was working for the money basically, but I love magic, but it gave me the ability to talk to everybody. So when I became a bartender, oh, I could really, I was good at getting tips. And then when I became a journalist, I was excellent getting you to talk to me. And that was a skill that like, that's an invisible skill. It doesn't show up on resumes. Those are invisible skills. And you have those. You have your strengths and you have your invisible skills. And I always tell people when you're sort of looking for this match fit, pay attention to the invisible skills. If you're talking about, especially with the access, a lot of the, a lot of the people I've been around who have actually accomplished the impossible it was the invisible skills. In, the, in action sports, we used to talk a lot about the late, great Shane McConkie, who's obscure, who's maybe one of the greatest action sport athletes who ever lived. There's a Red Bull put out a good movie about him. But what Shane could do that nobody else could do is he could see lines down the mountain. He would see a way down, path down the mountain that most everybody would be like, well, those are six clips in a row, and that's just certain death. And he'd be like, no, no, you like it there. You do this, you do this, you do this. It's doable. And he would then find these lines, and, and nobody... Now in Access Sports, we talk a lot about this ability to see lines and things like that, and it's well known. But at the time when we didn't quite know what we were looking at, it was an invisible skill. Now it's a visible skill. So how can our young listeners, Stephen, uncover their invisible skills? Yeah, I, like I don't actually, it's sort of like there's a bunch of strength finder tests out there. There's a bunch of, I always sort of, if you're interested in more flow, for example, one of the things that the research shows is not my work. This is Marty Seligman, 
and Christopher Peterson's work, but their work on strengths, they've done a lot of work on strengths. They find that if you're interested in more flow in your life, one of the easiest ways to do is try to work. And this could be what you do all day or for your career in a way that uses two or three or four or five of your strengths at once or uh, uses a, a strength in a new way. These are things that produce tend to produce a lot of flow. So you have to, to be able to identify your strengths. There's lots of kind of diagnostics all over. I don't like to get super jiggy with this stuff. What I usually do is ask like five people, hey, what are my three big strengths? And I look for over. I don't ever trust one person because they're going to have opinions. But if, some, if like one thing shows up on like four or five people's lists, I'm like, oh, okay, that's a real strength. Four or five different people are seeing it. Right. Maybe I should see if I could build on it. That, like none of this stuff has to be super complicated. You can really start simply with that. I love that. The person who I use in the coaching that I do with students who are stuck is Dr. Howard Gardner. <laughs> the eight types of intelligences that he uncovered. Let's get into one of your superpowers, which is writing. And Flashing back again, right after you met with the friend of yours at the advertising company who was trying to tell you maybe your future wasn't in advertising, and you then went all in on writing, and you decided you wanted to then make a living by writing. And just as the case for so many of our young listeners who are still in college or maybe, you know, just graduated, often there isn't a clear path to realizing these ambitions. You can say, I want to make a living as a writer, but then like, how do you do it? These often don't come with like instruction manuals. So can you talk about how you began to make that a reality? You've touched on the extreme sports. There was a bit of observing or maybe riding a new trend that you saw, a new national obsession that was beginning with extreme sports. And, uh, I, you know, I can tell you the story that you're poking at, and I will. I don't necessarily know if that's how I came to my career. You know what I mean? Because writing journalism is this incredible career where you can, if you put words together in a straight line, you can get paid to, to be curious. And I was really curious about two things at the start of my career. One of which was really not, well, I was fascinated by people. I want to know how do people work. And that was really neuroscience for me. I wasn't interested in psychology. It felt too squishy. It felt too subjective. It didn't feel rigorous enough for me. But in the 90s, when that, this was all happening, behavioral neuroscience was just becoming a field. And this is like the neurobiology of how do human emotions work? How does fear work? How does courage work? All these things. We were just starting to piece those answers together as the field of, of neurobiology was. That was fascinating. So I was writing a lot of stories about neuroscience. And simultaneously, I think this is what you were alluding to. I was writing a lot of stories about action sports. And action sports in the 1990s were they were a punk rock subculture, right? These were not main, they weren't in the Olympics, they weren't in the mainstream, they were really weird outsider things, but they were starting to shift. The X Games had just started the Gravity Games, Mountain Dew had a had, had their version of the X Games, which was called the Gravity Games. There was so there was money, and there were all these new magazines around that I was talking about earlier that wanted to cover this subject, but like it meant that if you could write 
and ski or ride and surf or ride and rock climb. There was work. And I couldn't even do those things very well, but I was obsessed with the sports and I lied to my editors and I spent about the better portion of 10 years chasing professional athletes around mountains and around oceans. And this is, this was the foundation of my career and the sort of the, the backstory in the art of possible because if you know anything about action sports in the 1990s, it's, it's referred to as the so-called era of impossible where more impossible, never been done, never going to be done feats got done than ever before. And the stuff wasn't just getting done. It was being iterated upon. So people were literally innovating on the edge of the impossible and none of it made sense, but this is what really caught my attention. It wasn't just that people were in every surfing and skiing and rock climbing and snowboarding and mountain biking, all these sports, they were extending barriers. They pushed past barriers faster and farther than everybody had done before. It was these athletes. This was a punk rock weirdo subculture. And most of the people I knew, I was living in Squaw Valley at the time, and uh, which was one of the meccas of these communities. Most of the people I knew were like, they came from broken homes, crappy childhoods. They had little education. They had no money. There was a lot of high-risk behavior. There was some drugs. There was some drinking. Normally, you put those things together in a community. People die young and go to jail. They don't reinvent what's possible for the human species. And so that caught my attention. Like, what the hell is going Why is this happening? How is it happening? How is it happening to these people? Because I always tell people it's, it's a very different thing. Like, when you see, you know, a big wave surfer, you watch a Red Bull movie, you see Laird Hamilton surfing a hundred foot wave or Ian Wall surfing a hundred foot wave or something like that. And you think, okay, that's like, that's crazy. That's insane. It's on a screen. It's far away. It's a totally different thing when you're out drinking on a Friday night with your friends and then you wake up Saturday morning, everybody's a little hungover and tired. You go into the mountains and the guy you were drinking with the night before goes out and does something that for all of recorded history was impossible. was not believed possible for the human body. And it's not just like somebody did it. It's like, your friend who you were drinking with the night before did it. That's a totally different, like, then you're like, well, wait a minute, this stuff, either our definition of possible is wrong or that like something else is going on because it doesn't, it was so personal. It didn't really didn't make much sense to me. So that was sort of where it all started for me just trying to solve that puzzle of like, what is going on? And once I sort of started to put the answer together in action sports, I wanted to know, well, is this true in art, in science, in business, in technology? And I took this question of what does it take to do the impossible into every domain and asked that question and used science to, to try to find the answer and then wrote books about what I discovered. And that's essentially what I've done for the past 30 some years. And it's my career. I always said, like, I followed an idea right off the edge of the world. That's all I did. And yes. for worse, but I, that's all I did. I followed an idea right off the edge of the world. Yes. And while you were covering your buddies doing all these impossible things, flying off the sides of mountains or surfing waves that were beyond the height of anything that any other human had done before, you also had a side hustle to that, right? You had to bartend. You mentioned the slang oh, yeah. of drinks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, sure. you weren't, yeah. you no, weren't making rent. Yeah, I was a bartender until I was 28. So I started bartending in college. So through college, through grad school, to pay for grad school, and up till the time I was 28. And I, you know, I had really a friendly boss who would let me take two weeks off to go report a story and then come back. And it was a really, it was a really cool bar. And bartending was great money. It's a great way to make a living also. Super fun job, I have to say. Yeah, so I, I worked 
two jobs. And then, I mean, people don't think about it because they don't put this together, but magazine writing and book writing are actually two different jobs. Being a journalist and being an author are actually two different jobs. So even when I stopped being a bartender and moved into writing quote-unquote full-time, I was two-thirds a magazine journalist and a journalist to pay my bills, and I was starting to write my books. I mean, I think the advance of my first novel, which took 11 years to write, think it was $5,000. Just to give you an idea of like, it was, which I think a sub, sub fraction of a penny an hour is what I was working for right by the time I was all sitting I don't think I was even making a full, a complete living from my books until I was probably in my late 30s. It took another decade and of working. I was doing what I wanted, but I had bosses. I was working for other people. I was still somebody else. I was still somebody's bitch. I get it. And, and the reason that I wanted to make that point or how you make that point, Stephen, is that for our young listeners, I don't want them to be under the misimpression that once you said, hey, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to cover sports and I'm going to do this, that it was like smooth sailing, no pun intended, from there on out. I want to now jump ahead a bit because we were talking about those four key ingredients in the roadmap to realizing the impossible motivation, huge importance, learning. And by that, we are not talking, you are not talking about the learning that we do in the classroom as students, whether in high school, college, grad school. Yes, of course, that's part of it. But really what you're saying on the journey to finding your passion, your purpose, and then developing that level of expertise is about lifelong learning and the importance of reading books. Mm. Why is the book piece so important? I mean, I can I can throw out one of the statistics here. I've got it written down where you talk about with the rise of Superman, one of your best-selling books, it might take the average reader, what, five, six hours, not even a day to read the whole book. And let's say it took a day. Let's say it took eight hours or 10 hours to read it. It took you 15 years of your life of reporting and researching and then spitting it out in a way that we could all absorb it. Yeah. So the, I was looking at what I call the, the return on investment on reading, right? And it was and talking to people who kept saying, kept bumping into people who were like, oh, yeah, I don't have time to read books anymore. I'm just reading magazines or blogs or listening to podcasts. And I've gotten, I wrote for magazines and I've written blogs and I do a podcast. So it's not that I have any problem with any of those art forms. It's that one, books are where they keep the secrets, like flat out books are where they keep the secrets. Two, Books are the most condensed form of knowledge on the planet. What I mean by that and, and sort of what you're teasing at is if I write a blog, it takes the average reader is 250 words a minute. It takes about four to seven minutes to read an average blog. I will put about a day and a half of work into an average blog. So you get a day and a half of my life. You give me four to seven minutes. That's a cool trade. A magazine article Let's say I'm writing a cover story for Wired or the New York Times Sunday Magazine, something like that. It's average 5,000 words. 
that's going to take most people about 20 minutes to read. How long does it take to report? How much of my brand power you're going to get? Average 10,000 word magazine article is a two to three month reporting process, usually a three to four month writing process, then a couple month editing process. And other smart people, my editors, my fact checkers, they're going to hammer on it too. So it's not just shit in my head, it's other people as well. So that's interesting. You give me 20 minutes and instead you get back 10 months. That's cool. That's actually a better ROI return on investment. A day and a half for four to six minutes. Well, we quadruple that. You're, you're, you go up four times. I go up by a factor of I don't even know what it is if it's a nine-month story. But a book, as you pointed out, a book rise, for example, take about six hours for most people to read. Use just average rate of speed. But you're getting 15 years of my life. And you're getting everybody I possibly have interviewed on the subject over that 50, right? It's just a lot of dense, dense knowledge. And you just can't, you just can't beat it. And the cool thing about it is you literally can get smarter than most of the rest of the world if you just never stop reading. You know what, if you look, if you know what to read and just keep reading, you will past like doesn't matter like where you're starting if you're going to start passing most people it's the craziest thing in the world it's oh my god i can get so much farther ahead of the competition whoever the competition is simply by putting my butt in a seat and just like looking at what like it's that's crazy it's unbelievable it's the easiest way to get better that like it's all it's it's unbelievable that it works (laughs) in my opinion it's amazing. Like it's magic. I can't like, like, okay, I'm going to sit down in this chair and I'm going to read this. I'm going to look at this thing in two hours from now. I'm going to be smarter. Are you, you see, kidding? I don't feel like that is magic. I feel like that's just smart. <laughs> magic is something where you're looking at it. You're like, how did they do that? How did they make that happen? Here's like, you're actually reading <laughs> You're absorbing the contents of a book. It's like the magic trick that everybody can do. That's what I mean. But I mean, it's but it's really like it's a crazy thing if you think about like we do all this stuff for peak performance, for intelligence training, for like all these things, and books are like one stop shopping. <laughs> it's a crazy thing to me. So let's talk about the third ingredient of creativity. We've touched on motivation, on learning. What is the role of creativity in realizing the impossible? Well, I said said at the beginning when I first introduced, this is how you steer. And when we talk about creativity, motivation, learning, when we talk about motivation, we're talking about intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation. We're also talking about grit and goal setting. We didn't go into those things, but those are motivation is a catch-all. What a psychologist is motivation, they mean a bunch of stuff. Right. When you say creativity, there's a ton of stuff that also goes into creativity. We could go in any different direction and I'll, and I'll let you steer in a second. But the one thing I want to start with is I don't think people realize if you not, if you think you're not creative, right? If you're not working in one of those fields that people are running around going, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not creative. I'm not creative. And I like just bullshit. Like creativity comes. It's the ability to link ideas together in novel ways, right? Now, linking ideas together, that's pattern recognition. That's what our brains do automatically. It's what neurons do at every level. We are giant pattern recognition machines. So literally saying, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not wired for that. That's not me. 
you would have to not have a brain, like literally not have a brain. Then, then we, then you can make an argument that, okay, absolutely. You, you, maybe you're not creative. You're also not alive, but like, and now we're in a zombie movie. That's cool. It's a different thing. Right. My point is we are all hardwired for this. It's a set of skills. What's interesting about creativity. It's not even that much of a set of skill. It's a way of like tuning your consciousness. I'll give you, give me be concrete for people. So one of the reasons, for example, if you're in college and you don't want to, if you procrastinate doing your paper on the night before, if you could avoid it, I understand the time correction. But if you're trying to do creative work, here's why you don't want to do this. When we are trying to be creative, creativity is a recombinatory process. Fancy word of saying that what happens when we blend shit together. Creativity is what happens when our senses usually gather new information, novel information in the world, combine it with older ideas and use the results to produce something startling new. It's that recombinatory process. So there's a part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. Fancy word, we'll call it the ACC, which is what we call it for short. It does a lot of different things, but one of the things it does is it helps us find links between ideas. And the more fear in your system the more logical and linear the ACC is designed to be. So when we all know this, we have, we, we've seen this in our own lives. Fight or flight is the extreme example. You get really scared. Your brain goes, oh, shit, pressure situation. We can't give you lots of choices. You can't handle it. We're going to reduce your choices. You can fight or you can flee. Or sometimes you can freeze and get stuck in the middle and not be able to do either, right? But those are the only options available to you. That same thing happens with any amount of anxiety, we don't feel it, we don't notice it, but any amount of anxiety will cause the ACC to be logical and linear. If you have time luxury, this is why you don't want to put it off to the night before. If you have time luxury, your brain can go, oh, no pressure? Cool, we can make far-flung connections between ideas. Your brain will be more creative naturally. You don't have to work so hard. So that's what I mean when I say like creativity is sort of a skill, but it's sort of a state of consciousness. It's a way of understanding, hey, this is how my brain does creativity. So all I have to do is create these kind of baseline conditions. Everything else gets taken care of for you. People think creativity is this thing you have to do. No, it's sort of like you have to do the things around it. And I'm not saying it's not work, right? But the actual thing you're looking for, that creativity, it emerges. So can I pick up on that? Because maybe the antithesis of creativity, you mentioned the amygdala, is fear, right? And what a great motivator fear can be. And I know that in your book, you talk about how to use it as a positive and not a negative. And personally, I love the quote, whether in fact he said it, I don't know. I'm just going to attribute it to Joseph Campbell. And that is... The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And so if you can overcome your fear, if you can push through it, the way that elite athletes, you mentioned Laird Hamilton, the surfer, if you can push through that fear, you can achieve great things. I don't know if you're going to disagree with that. I don't know about great things. That's an interesting term. But I will say that everything you want in your life is probably on the other side of the stuff that scares you most. And what people don't realize, and I think what's really wonderful about fear is, and I talk about this in the book, it's sort of a 
guiding light. When I don't know which way to go, I ask myself, well, what scares me the most? Okay, cool. Let's go in that direction. That's what you end up getting with peak performers a lot because fear is such, it's a good motivator. And what do you get for free with fear? Focus. I'm scared of this thing. I can't stop paying attention to it. Okay, cool. Then you don't have to burn 25% of your energy trying to pay attention to it because it's happening automatically because you're scared of it. And certainly in terms of kind of overall well-being and life satisfaction, we tend to find those things directly on the other side, the stuff that scares us. And if it's something that scares you that is going to take years to accomplish, even better. Like the high, hard, scary, long challenges, I have said over and over and over again, flow is a huge portion of overall happiness and well-being, life satisfaction. But I'm really pretty convinced that life satisfaction is another way of saying I have accomplished a ton of hard things. I don't think it's any, it's literally the confidence. What we think that life satisfaction is like anything, we, we don't realize that it's really a confidence that comes from doing so many difficult things that no matter what life throws at you, you're like, okay, I got this. Bring it on. Like, what, what you got next? Because I've been through so much of it. One of the great advantages, not that there are many, but of spending 11 years writing your first book is, and getting it out into the world is I did it. It was 11 years. So I learned really early on, both from writing that book and at the same time, Weightlifting actually taught me this because you have to, I was so skinny and it took me so long to actually put any real muscle on my body, years and years and years of work. And those two things taught me kind of the value of just a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, a little bit the next day, day after day after day. I, I say in Art of Possible, I say in a lot of my books, and I've said out loud a lot, peak performance is compound interest. If you go through the Art of Impossible, and you're looking for like the biology, our biology comes down to about six things that you should do every day and seven things you should do every week. That's the sort of the peak performance checklist, but that's not the difficulty. The difficulty is you have to do it today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. It's day after day after day after day after day for months and months and months and years and years. That's when we're the amazing start to show up. That's harder to understand when you're younger because you probably haven't done that. You, you probably haven't had that experience at all. College, for a lot of people, is the hardest thing they've ever done. I started it to four years. I finished. That was the hard, or maybe high school was. If, you, if your high school was anything like mine, high school was the hardest thing I had to do. There's sort of like a, a calm and a wisdom that you get a little bit just from sticking with high, hard challenges. And, and just, I'm going to do this every day for five years. And I that's how I tend to think about my life these days, which is, I've, I've always done this, is I don't ask myself, like, what would make me feel? But I said, well, what if I knew X five years from now, how would my life be different? And that's how I make decisions. I make decisions in five-year chunks because that's how long it takes to really get great at something. So I ask myself, okay, like if you were really great at this thing, would your life be different in a way that's worth a damn? And if the answer is yes, then what do I care if it takes five years? What, I mean, what am I really going to say? It's going to take an hour a day for five years. Okay. And on the other end of it, I get to be excellent. Cool. 
because I get to be excellent for the rest of my life. And what's five years of embarrassment the rest of my life? And that's how I tend to think about it. But it's hard to think that way. I've always sort of been wired a little bit for that. But it's a hard thing to kind of wrap your head around when you're younger because you just haven't had that many years. So everyone feels a little more precious and everything feels a lot longer. And I get that. I sympathize, but it doesn't change the strategy the way I think about it. So I love that. And what Stephen is talking about there, he touches on in the book, of course, and that is grit. And another word for that is resilience. And a question that I try to ask all time for coffee guests, Stephen, is to share a time in their life, especially for those of us who are farther along, farther down our professional path. It's even more powerful when it's something that we've experienced a failure, a huge challenge that we've experienced more recently. And the importance here is not the failure or the huge challenge, but how we persevered and what the lesson was that we may have learned in the process. Oh my God, there have been so many. I mean, I've broken 82 bones. I spent three years in bed with Lyme disease. I bankrupted myself a couple of times. Take your pick. We can go on and on and on. So, I, let's, yeah. I let's mean, pick the, the bankrupted. Uh, well, <laughs> that was, you? So, yeah, the first, so I got Lyme disease when I was 30 years old. And after I sort of started working with you, and I spent three years in bed, lost three years completely. And I... About a year and a half in, the doctors pulled me off medicine because my I had had a stomach lining was bleeding out in in reaction to the to the antibiotics, and they couldn't give me any more courses of antibiotics, and I wasn't better. And I, at that point, I had I spent ten years getting my dream job at a magazine, and I had lost that job because I was too sick. I loved the girl, the woman I thought I was going to marry had left me because that happens when you spend three years in bed and with Lyme disease, and I then I bankrupted myself. To, I spent all the money I, I had left in the world trying to find a cure on alternative medicine and all that stuff. So that was one example. And then almost happened again at the housing with the housing crisis in 2007. If you were a journalist or a writer before the housing crisis, the bottom fell out. I mean, when the dot-com bubble burst, people don't remember this, but I was made for the dot-com bubble burst. I was making $3 a word and I was writing 10,000 word articles. After it burst, I was writing 2,000 word articles and I was making 50 cents a word. And that was the whole industry, right? Like the entire industry. I took 200% pay cut more overnight in the whole industry that happened. I was on staff at a magazine, a major magazine before the dot-com crash. There were 54 of us on staff before the dot-com crash. There were four of us left afterwards. They fired everyone. So how did you get through it? Lyme disease was very slowly. I tell that story a little bit in the art of impossible and the sort of the back of the book a little bit and how it impacted flow research. But like I had to rebuild my career, you know, like literally like I had, I was a big fancy writer with a big title and whatever. And I had to sort of start over with new magazines who had new editors and people I had never worked with before. And I had to sort of build my way back up again. And then after the dot-com crash, journalism was gone. I mean, or after the housing bubble, journalism itself was, I mean, it, like then it really didn't exist. And then I had to reinvent my career almost entirely. again. that was sort of when I dove full force into flow research and really sort of started the flow research collective and did all, started that work. 
that kind of emerged out of that. So one of the things that I've always learned about that stuff is if you don't quit, you just keep going, keep doing the checklist, just keep going. That's how you pick yourself back up, right? There's no, nothing is going to happen. You can't, I mean, maybe you can, but I found for me, I couldn't do it overnight. Like it's just a little bit, it was just every lesson again, it's a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit. Um, that's how you do it. And I like, I want to say that there's nothing special about my particular story. If you talk to any professional, I mean, we could tell your story, Andrew, I'm sure it's got the same kind of up and downs. This is just like, you think it's special along the way when it's happening to you, but then you get to a certain point and you start listening to other people and you're like, oh, wow. Everybody who got anywhere got their ass kicked a bunch of times along the way. It's going to happen. And I always say, for me, all the great difficulties I've encountered in my life, whatever they are, Lyme disease is, is a great example. I, it was a teleportation chamber. I went in one person and it teleported me from the life I had into the life I wanted. Every great tragedy in my life that has happened has been a gateway directly into the life I wanted to live. So, and you never know that ahead of time. I spent three years in bed with Lyme disease. And if you would have talked to me at the end of those three years, I was suicidal. I was, you know, I was ready to kill myself. I was ready to kill other people. And it turned out everything I wanted in the world I got because I spent three years in bed with Lyme disease. It was in fact the shortest distance between two points. If the universe had drawn up a map and said, okay, this is all the stuff you want. We don't care about your discomfort. We just care about speed. That's what would have happened. So I've started to realize that like when the horrible shit happens, it's usually right. The teleportation chamber into the life you want to have and try not to judge on the front end. As horrible as it is. Boom. There it is. I agree with you a thousand percent. If you can bear the pain and make it through to the other side, that's where the riches lie. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. As we wrap up here, Stephen, I have to ask you about the fourth ingredient being flow. I want you to know, normally everybody makes me spend the entire interview talking about flow. So it was really fun to not have to talk about flow until the very end. Well, there you go. So why does it matter? What is your definition and why does it matter? So let's start with the fact that I don't have a definition. Science has a definition. And the scientific definition of flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and our best. Earlier, we talked more specifically, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We're so focused on the task at hand, everything else just vanishes. Action awareness are going to start to merge your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your head, going to diminish, get very quiet. Time's going to pass strangely, slows down. You get a freeze from effect when your name has been in a car crash. But more frequently, it speeds up, right? You get so sucked into what you're doing that two hours pass by in like two minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. And that's not an exaggeration. This is not just my research. This research has been done all over. Motivation, productivity, and grit will spike 500% in flow. Uh, the Department of Defense learned that soldiers in flow will learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. Creativity and innovation will increase 400 to 700%. Overall well-being 
meaning, purpose, life satisfaction, huge spike. In fact, we now know that people who score off the charts for overall well-being and life satisfaction is the people who most flow in their lives. You see an increase in collaboration, cooperation, empathy, environment, ecological awareness, which is our ability to see and perceive the natural world. And if you happen to be an athlete and you're on the physical side, strength, stamina, fast twitch muscle response, they all go through the roof and our, our sensitivity to pain goes way down. So it's a, it's a huge compliment. It sounds like a weird thing. I talk about why it's this big compliment of skills in, in the art of impossible. We don't, we're not going to have time to go into that, but there's a reason why one state of consciousness amplifies all this stuff. It sounds a little weird, but you know that. So the cool thing, and I think the answer to your question is we're all hardwired for this. So flow is a built in, like it's not even built into just humans. So it's most mammals. Dogs get into flow. Horses get into flow. We think birds might be able to get into flow. We're all hardwired for peak performance. A state of consciousness where we're 500% more creative and learning times get cut in half and it comes, it's a built-in feature of being human. Everybody, everybody, it's one of the most well-established facts about flow is it's universal. It shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. We've got a good understanding of, of what those conditions are. And one way I always talk about motivation, learning, creativity, those are motivation, learning, creativity, you'll notice are all things that flow massively amplifies. Right? When I was talking about things that, so why you might ask, well, am I going to bother training motivation or doing the passion recipe if flow is going to produce for me and all that stuff. And all that's true. The way I like to explain it is flow is through like, imagine a Model T, like an old Model T car. I can soup up the engine. The engine now goes 250 miles an hour. That's flow. But if you've still got the same Model T, it's got the same skinny-ass tires and crappy frame, you can go 250 miles an hour and the car is going to shake apart and explode. That's what happens. Flow will massively amplify motivation, learning, and creativity, these skills. And if you don't have all the foundational skills in place underneath those big labels, you can't keep up and you sort of explode. So I can flow using the science is really trainable. But it's not sustainable unless you've also got the motivation, learning, and creativity skills to go along with it. So we're all hardwired for it. It's available to all of us. But if we want like a, a much more high flow lifestyle, much more peak performance based lifestyle, cool. But you want other all these other skill sets to come along with the flow. Otherwise, you start just running into problems long term. Beautiful. Final question. This is a quick one. If you could go back to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and do it all over again, Stephen, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, so I get asked this question fairly frequently, and I don't give myself any advice because I absolutely love everything I do. Every day, every moment of every day, even when it's shitty. I love what I do. And I don't get to, if I don't, I don't get here. If I, if I change anything, maybe I don't get here. And I really like here, so I don't change anything. You know, honestly, the thing that I wish, and there's, I don't believe there's any way to learn this when you're younger, or at least I couldn't learn it because I had to only learn it through experience. But I really wish I understood that hard work worked. Hard work works. It just works. But it's really hard to understand that until you've spent 11 years writing a book, spent 10 years trying to get into shape. Like, though, like you do things like that and you're like, holy crap, wow, you can go a lot farther, right? But it's hard to, you can't, hearing that from the outside and you're like, fuck you, buddy, hard work works. You know what I mean? And I don't blame you for having that reaction. I really, I really don't. But 
That's the thing I wish. I don't think you could have gotten it through my head at 18 or 19 or 20 when I was in college. Like I was a hard worker, but what I'm actually talking about here and what you're nodding your head and like, uh -huh, uh -huh, I, know, I don't think I was capable of getting that when I was that age, though I think young people today are a lot more impressive than I was at my age. I find them, I find them much more impressive than we were. And hopefully they hear this as incredibly hopeful for them because the truth is you all have the raw materials. You have it. And if you follow the formula that Stephen has laid out here in Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer, you can do it too. Stephen is also the co-host of Flow Research Collective Radio, which is a top 10 iTunes science podcast. And to help you discover what is standing in your way and to help you push past the problem, the Flow Institute has Flow created a, a free diagnostic. Oh, the Flow Blocker. Yeah, go yeah. to flowblocker.com. We did. There are about six major things that stand between most people and Flow. And we built a diagnostic, www.flowblocker.com. Another thing. So everything we were talking about, how do you stack curiosity into passion and passion into purpose and all this stuff? You want that gross details are impossible. But if you go to the passionrecipe.com, we created a bunch. And mostly for college students, people like that who are really struggling with this one, we built it for you guys so and gals as a, as a free tool and it's a bunch of workshops. And I think it's an interactive workbook that takes you through that process as well. We'll include links to all of that in show notes. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This has so far exceeded my already incredibly high expectations. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.